This is Hotspot's H2O from Circle of Blue, where we're examining regions, populations, and countries that are at most risk from water-related stresses. I'm J. Carl Ganter. With stories from around the world, we're reviewing the challenges that individuals confront and the solutions they discover as they strive to build resilient communities in the face of the fast-growing competition between water, food, and energy in a changing climate. Today, we're joined in conversation by Circle of Blue's team of award-winning journalists to discuss the implications of the U.S. election on water policy, investment, and climate. I'm joined by Keith Schneider, senior editor and chief correspondent, and Brett Walton. He's editor of Circle of Blue's Federal Water Tap, and Cody Kozicek. She's editor of The Stream, our daily digest of international water news trends. Keith, Brett, and Cody have been following the issues around water security domestically and across the globe. President-elect Trump has made significant campaign statements about water and climate change, including his pledge to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. He's promised to increase spending on U.S. infrastructure projects, but where does water fit in? And where does his promise to close the EPA take us, given the campaign's other promise for clear air and clean water? Of course, follow this conversation and many others at circleofblue.org. Keith Schneider's on the phone with us now, and Keith... Let's have you start our conversation. Give us some context. Thanks, Carl. You know, since the election, we've we've heard a lot of concern about what the Trump administration may do on the environment, and certainly we've been watching it on water. You know, but from my perspective, Trump's election uh, is is an unconventional um, indication of, of rules of the game that are changing, both in the United States and globally. So this is not, in my view, just a total gloom and doom you, it also has a lot of opportunities. So let me just let me just spell it out. He he talked about water sort of tangentially, not specifically in three areas. One was on climate change, in which he said that he would withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Accord. Secondly, he talked about uh, increasing uh, revenue funding uh, for infrastructure. And third, he talked about concerns that he had about the EPA, but he specifically said that he was about clean air and clean water for all Americans. Well, that from a Republican candidate is the clearest, clearest message of um, strong oversight for clean air and clean water that I've heard in my career as a journalist from a Republican presidential candidate and now pro- Republican presidential elect. So we have to look at this as journalists that have you know, we don't have any 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 psychic skin in the game. We're journalists. We're going to report on what it is that the administration is doing. And so our role is to both assess critically, probe deeply, but to be very clear about, about the rules of the game have changed, and we need to respond to those new rules of the game with very clear-sighted reporting. Uh, well, given that... Uh- I think Trump brings three big uncertainties to federal government and particularly relating to water. Um, So one of these uncertainties is the relationship with Congress. Uh, Trump cannot do uh, everything alone. So he'll need some uh, working relationship with uh, the House and the Senate to get some of these things passed. Right now, Congress has shown little interest in some of the ideas that Trump has talked about, especially for infrastructure. Right now, there's a water resources bill that the House and Senate uh, can't seem to agree on that includes funding for Flint and increases in drinking water infrastructure. Uh, So I think that relationship, how Congress views Trump's policies, will be uh, one thing to watch. A second thing will be the agency leadership 
the Trump campaign was a relatively small outsider campaign. They didn't have a lot of people and they didn't have a lot of uh, assistance from Republican establishment. But now that they're elected, uh, they have to form a government. And a lot of those officials are going to be drawn from people that are in the know. Uh, we don't know who's going to be heads of EPA or Interior or Energy, some of the, the three departments that have a big influence on water. But from some of the names that have been tossed out there, it seems like there's going to be uh, a lot of people who are in the, the second George Bush administration will be coming back uh, to Washington. So a return of the Bush administration officials uh, could mean decreases in staffing and funding for some of these agencies. Certainly uh, look to roll back some of the uh, regulations that the Obama administration put in on oil and gas. Uh, that's another thing to watch. The third is Trump's policies and goals. Uh, that's a huge area of uncertainty. This campaign was not one that was run on policy detail. It was run about uh, a big idea of change. Uh, what that change means for Trump, uh, I don't think anyone has a clear idea. He's talked about infrastructure and talked about rolling back regulations. Uh, but where where those um, broad statements come down in policy detail is something, uh, again, there's a big uncertainty. I think that's interesting, Brett, what you're talking about as far as um, the nuance in his policies. And I think that um, is definitely something that will be interesting to watch in uh, regards to something like uh, nutrient pollution, uh, something that we've reported on in the Great Lakes and the Florida Everglades, um, as well as other places. And, uh, you know, kind of this, it requires this sort of complex view of things from way upstream, um, how farms relate to, uh, you know, downstream water quality and things like that. And so it'll be interesting if, if his administration really looks into those sorts of emerging issues and uh, can kind of take some leadership role or if they're really going to depend more on the states to figure those things out. And uh, I think if it is based more on the states, then we might see a lot of disparity um, between water quality in different areas. A uh, fourth quality here that I, I didn't interject, but uh, Trump's temperament is another thing to watch for. Is uh, He's been volcanic and chaotic and, and vengeful in his dealings you know, uh, in, the, in the political realm so far uh, that's materialized in uh, falling out with some of the transition team, whether that translates into a chaotic and volcanic um, agency culture uh, is another thing that remains to be seen. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that, that a candidate and a president-elect that comes to office um, with um, so many principles and values that differ from previous president-elects is going to be shaking up, is going to shake up the status quo. It has shaken up the status quo. But the institutions that work here, particularly in the United States, are pretty solid, pretty entrenched. There's no, there's going to be no success at all if Trump moves strong to eliminate provisions that are now become sacred to the United States, to Americans. The EPA itself is a very respected agency when it comes to dealing with people at the grassroots. I mean, the, 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 the agency's record of providing cleaner air and cleaner water over the last 40 years has been, in my view, astonishing and astounding and very successful and has been replicated or sought to be replicated by many, many other countries around the world. And, you know, how Congress 
will deal with environmental issues. And if Congress moves to, to do more to clean air, to, to afford clean air and clean water, that would be a big change than what we've seen over the last 20 years. Um, on climate change, which of course hydrology, our, our disruptive, disrupting hydro, hydrology conditions are very much a result of climate change. If the United States really seeks to withdraw from its commitments on climate change, it becomes a pariah among nations. That hurts us economically, it hurts us politically, it hurts our standing in the world. It isn't going to help the United States if that occurs because the, the train on climate and the train on carbon emissions has left the station. The world's vector on carbon reductions has moved on. Coal is more expensive than um, hydropower, wind power, not, I'm sorry, wind power and solar energy in producing electricity. And that we're seeing that in our reporting all over the world, from Bangladesh, from China, from India, from Philippines, from Indonesia, from Australia. The world is moving on from South Africa. One president is not going to be able to change um, the very deep historical um, uh, transitions that are occurring in both water and in, and in fossil fuel development. Right. You make a good point that the market is in favor of clean energy development and that you know, even uh, a president who says he wants to bring back, back coal is not going to be able to because coal is quite expensive. Uh, on the EPA, uh, just a, a note there, the last eight years or so, the EPA has kind of had a bunker mentality where uh, the agency seemed under assault uh, and was under assault from uh, Congress on environmental regulation, on clean water regulation, uh, especially with the waters of the U.S. rule, which is now in court. Uh, that, that bunker mentality could be expected to continue, especially with um, EPA budget being relatively stagnant and staffing cuts having been promised by, by Trump, which is where you mentioned that the laws still stand. And I think there will be more litigation as you see citizen groups forcing the agency's hand to, to address things that is legally required to do. You know, when I was a young reporter 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago, Ronald Reagan was elected president under a campaign promise to deregulate. And the EPA was very much a target of that administration. And the Reagan administration got nowhere with that. One is that, that you know, the, the conservation of land and water, protection of public health, the, the principles that, that America has held deal, dear about the quality of its landscape and its natural resources extends way back to the founding of the Republic. And Americans won't stand for disassembling that protective infrastructure. And they didn't during the Reagan. And, and Trump, at least in his declarations about his, his, his uh, support for clean air and clean water, his strong support for clean air and clean water indicates that we're not going to see that kind of attack. Um, and if he tries to do it, he's going to encounter one of the most um, influential, well-organized opposition movements in the world today and has been for the last 20, 30 years, which is the American environmental movement and the American environmental press, which is larger in its, in its uh, scope than it's ever been in online, mainline, uh, the communications operations of the green groups, uh, legal outfits that have communications operations. So, I mean, this this is a this is an infrastructure that uh, he may adjust it, he may ignore it, he may try to diminish it. 
he's not going to get very far in trying to unwrap it and uh, and start over. Similarly on climate, I think, you know, I think that the attack on the climate agenda, the climate structure, which is a support of coal, is a miscoming. I mean, it, it, it doesn't work as just a, a, you know, a piece of logic because coals stay on the planet Earth is beginning to wane from history. We're seeing that pivot. Yeah, so we've talked mostly uh, broadly about what a Trump administration might mean. I jotted down a few details for people to pay attention to, particularly to water that, that could be in play. Uh, one, we mentioned infrastructure spending. Uh, Trump has talked about a trillion dollars over 10 years. Uh, that's largely from uh, trying to encourage more private sector, private capital participation, um, partnerships between uh, these investors and public agencies he talks more about transportation than water, uh, and it would be interesting to see how um, any sort of water private partnership would happen. Um, that capital is out there. It just hasn't been too easy to get those deals done. Uh, a second would be uh, public lands and how Trump falls into this public lands transfer movement. Uh, that some Republicans in Congress are pushing, that's transferring lands to the states. Uh, if that were to happen, like a lot of public lands are where are headwater streams in the national forests. Um, if states were to take more control of those lands, I think a lot of those states would be unable to manage them. Uh, and, and a lot of those lands would be candidates for being sold off or developed. Uh, another area, Colorado River, uh, the federal government has a big stake in the Colorado River there are several consequential uh, decisions to be made in the next few years, one of which is um, an agreement with Mexico to um, extend water conservation and uh, drought response. That's being negotiated right now. Uh, people hoped it might be done by the end of the Obama administration, but it looks like it's going to negotiations will continue on. Um, there's Indian water rights settlements that need to take place in the basin to see, to settle out who has rights to water um, Salton Sea in Southern California is shrinking and set to shrink even farther when uh, an agreement runs out at the end of next year. Uh, the federal government needs to play a role in, in funding and restoring that area. And then just uh, you know, every big water uh, restoration water body in the U.S. has some federal role. It's Great Lakes, Everglades, Puget Sound, Chesapeake Bay. The willingness for uh, federal government to continue to fund and participate those in those um, Restoration projects is another area to watch. And you mentioned funding, which I think is a really important point, both with the infrastructure and these restoration projects, um, just because uh, where is the money going to come from and will that require raising taxes at all? And is that something that he would be willing to do? Um, my feeling from the campaign is that that's not something they want to do. So I, it will be interesting to see where they want to bring in the money to make those infrastructure improvements. You know, one of the areas that I see when I'm overseas is the opportunities that American uh, technology, American manufacturing, uh, American equipment is being put to use for what are socially socially positive results in desalination, in small hydropower, in wind power, in in uh, in solar power, in uh, water treatment, wastewater treatment. Wastewater uh, water supply, a lot of that, a lot of the, the um, uh, know-how and practices and equipment is coming from the United States. So presumably, um, 
Donald Trump is president, who's ran on a, on a campaign of being an ardent and capable businessman, will see the uh, opportunities to bring some of the manufacturing to the United States of that equipment, one, and two, not get tangled up in the kinds of trade war talk that was occurring during the campaign. That's, that will probably diminish as his supporters uh, and American companies and practitioners bring to his attention that there are literally tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars of economic opportunity that are available to the United States if it takes advantage of it, available to the United States in our, in our communities to both develop and make that equipment. And I'd be interested, um, Brett, maybe you know a little bit more about this, but uh, as far as basic research into water or um, monitoring, I, I know that's a big thing that we come across in our stories all the time is just um, needing data on water. So I'm interested to see if that will be something that is emphasized or if that gets kind of left by the wayside. Yeah, that's real. I mean, really in the, the budget detail. Um, USGS continues to push for national uh, stream gauge network funding for that and for national groundwater monitoring. Um, EPA has a couple new centers for uh, water modeling and water finance assistance. I mean, I think those things are all continue on as they will with you know, general budget fights as they were the last you know, four to eight years. The only thing I was going to ask you guys is if um, what you think will happen with Dakota Access, that might be resolved before he even takes office, I guess. But um, projects like that, I think, where there's maybe not a clear connection between um, it's a localized water concern that has garnered widespread uh, support in the environmental community, but at the same time, it's not necessarily something that's going to affect everyone's water in the u.s so i'm curious to see how that plays out as well yeah there's uh, that's one of the things that's open for discussion there's a lot of people who feel that uh, trump administration that's more favorable to oil and gas industry will be more likely to approve these pipelines reopen keystone xl and um, approve the dakota access well, I, you know, I think, again, again, those kinds of mega projects, mega construction projects that involve resources, either developing them or transporting them, are in historical trouble. What we're seeing around the world and clearly in North America is that planning for infrastructure of that magnitude to be in the, in the ground and, and be able to be profitable over the time that it's uh, it's, it's, it's lifespan, it's intended lifespan is very problematical now. It's not just, it's not just the Dakota Access pipeline. It's, you know, how long is it possible to profitably drill and produce oil in the Bakken? How long in, in the Keystone XL, does it make sense to build an $8 billion pipeline out of a source of oil whose 40-year lifespan is very problematical now because of the cost of developing oil there in a in, an, in a century in which fossil energy is likely and has already begun to, I don't, I don't want to say fade away, but make a change in, in its, in its um, uh, use, in, in its supply and in its use. We are seeing all over the world mega mining projects, mega water projects, mega hydropower projects. We know that there are, if not most, but many of the world's billion dollar oil drilling, offshore oil drilling platforms 
are mothballed in the Pacific, in the, on the, in the Asian Pacific. As Transworld, the, their operator, waits for oil prices to come back to a level that makes it profitable to drill for deep oil in deep-sea um, locations. The, the, the shipping industry, Hyundai Shipping, one of the world's largest shipping companies, went bankrupt in October because there's overcapacity as developers of big ships um, overbuilt. They built boats that were too big, A, for ports, and carried too much capacity for the, for the world's trade. So those big ships, modern, those modern ships in the world are being are being put ashore, mothballed temporarily and maybe permanently as stranded assets. So the Dakota Access Pipeline is an example in North America of the considerable risks of big, expensive natural resource-based uh, production and transport projects. And it goes beyond Donald Trump. It went beyond Obama. People. You know, there are more people in more places where these things are being built, and they're more culturally activated than ever before to oppose them. And that's what we're seeing in South Dakota. So it's not a, it is by no means a, a given that that pipeline is either shut down or continues. I mean, there's 70% of it is already complete. And I think that's key what you mentioned and that uh, you've reported all over the world, Keith, is that civic engagement has really actually been. Uh, successful in shutting down some of these bigger projects that people oppose, even if the government is really um, pushing for them to occur. And what we've also seen is that water lies at the foundation for the resistance. Water security, water pollution, water supply, water stresses are, if not the leading issue prompting citizen revolt or citizen opposition, it's right there at the top with land use issues, with dislocation issues, people being moved off the land with um, concerns about safety. Water's right there all over the world. And that's, you know, water security is the primary issue, one of the primary issues driving the Dakota Access Pipeline. It was the, one of the primary issues that drove the opposition to the Keystone XL Pipeline. It's one of the primary issues that are driving opposition to the Kinder Morgan Pipeline in, in Canada. These big projects are fraught with, with, with social, cultural, financial, ecological risk, no matter where they're happening in the world. But there's twice as many of us in more places than there were 35 years ago, and they're much, we're much more culturally activated than we were. You've been listening to a Circle of Blue team roundtable with reporters Cody Kozicek, Keith Schneider, and Brett Walton. This has been another installment of Hotspots H2O. Read and hear more at circleofblue.org. I'm J. Carl Ganter. <laughs>